In a world full of boring stories, bad videos, and marketing misinformation, one very tall man with a weird last name will use his microphone. This thing on? Use his video marketing knowledge. It's the red button, right? And use his friends. Please be on the show. To change that. You are listening to The Garlic Marketing Show with Ian. What? No, that's how you pronounce it. Well, if you say so, your host, Ian Garlic. Welcome to the Garlic Marketing Show. Today's guest, we're going to be talking legal again. It's an important subject, but we've got an awesome guest who was in-house counsel for Microsoft and Walmart and General Electric doing litigation before moving to private practice. Uh, But first, let's uh, get a little message from our sponsor, Story Cruise. And you know, if there's one, if you want to promote your store, law firm, or any other business, online video is the way to go. But the problem is which videos to create, how to format them, who will shoot them, who will edit them. Storycruise.com is your one-stop shop. Whether you're looking for a videographer that understands your marketing strategy, tools, apps, editors, marketers, storycruise.com is the ultimate resource for business video. All right, on to our guest today, an expert in e-com, ran his own e-com store, but also has worked with, like I said, Microsoft, Walmart, General Electric. Paul Raffleson, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so yeah, I mean, once again, it's, I, I think this is an interest, super interesting topic when it comes to marketing, when it comes to running a business, especially online business is e-com and tax law, because it's going to affect the markets, right, Paul? I mean, how, tell us a little bit how it's changing and how it's affecting the markets. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's having a pretty negative effect on the market, although things are starting to turn, um, you know, the problem with, with e-commerce is it's almost too easy in some respects. I mean, you know, it's, it's very easy to just sort of, uh, to use the legal phrase, just sort of dive headfirst into the stream of commerce. And so you're, you're operating, you're a small business owner, a micro business owner, and, you know, with just a few clicks and you're now selling into multiple state in every state, basically you're selling into multiple countries. You know, you might be sourcing from China, visiting the Canton fair, having to deal with import export. I mean, it's, it's just really it's become too easy to access the global economy. And that's really what e-commerce is. It's become a portal up to the global economy um, for anyone. So in, in many ways, it's been very liberating. But the problem is the tax regulators um, who have the you know, e-commerce uh, aptitude of uh, Senator Hatch asking uh, Mark Zuckerberg how you make money on Facebook when you don't uh, charge for the services are, are making terrible policies and laws and they're crushing it. I mean, it's, it's, you talk about a burden on interstate commerce, as we say in the law, uh, tax is at the forefront of burdening the interstate commerce here. And, and unfortunately, it's kind of not a well-understood issue and, and very misrepresented um, but it's crushing a lot of good people. Yeah. I mean, and it's crazy too, because I, I, I was looking through it and I mean, let's talk a little bit about the Supreme, the recent Supreme court Wayfair law or Wayfair, Wayfair decision. Can you explain what happened there and what does that mean? Yeah. So Wayfair is overturning, you know, a longstanding precedent of, you know, physical presence is required to have a 
um, to be subject to the jurisdiction of the state for tax purposes or what we call nexus. And, you know, we often think of nexus for those people who, you know, are even, I mean, I have a Facebook group of 2,500 people who talk about nexus, which is crazy. Um, uh, so it's becoming a term that most e-commerce sellers actually are familiar with and not a technical, you know, legal term. Um, but basically there's two types of nexus. Uh, there's the nexus we all know and love from, you know, first year law school with, you know, Pinoy or Neff, Burger King, these cases that, uh, about when the courts can have jurisdiction, but, um, the courts over time have sort of created a sort of a secondary layer of nexus specifically to tax called uh, physical presence nexus, which we saw in this case called Quill versus North Dakota, uh, most recently prior to Wayfair. And, you know, at that time, you know, pre-e-commerce, really pre-internet, um, you know, the courts just just decided, hey, we're going to create a bright line here that, you know, if a company doesn't have a physical presence in a state, it shouldn't be subject to their tax system. And, you know, companies, big big companies have sort of gamed it. You know, they've played games with their operations, trying to structure themselves around having physical presence and, you know, for the longest time have been taking advantage of that fact to basically avoid collecting sales tax for purposes of um, having cheaper prices. So the most notorious obviously is Amazon. Um, and, you know, enough is enough. The court um, you know, uh, South Dakota changed their law to this concept of economic nexus, where if you have so many transactions or, you know, $100,000 or 200 transactions, and we'll get back to that 200 transaction thing maybe later, um, you have an economic nexus with our state and we can subject you to tax and totally flew in the face of physical presence for sales tax purposes, but um, it was for the purposes of mounting a challenge. And so the case went to the court. And the court basically decided just to undo the bright line rule and just said it was just no longer workable. And, you know, to 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 a great extent, I think the court was 100 percent right. I wrote an amicus brief actually for that case for Online Merchants Guild on behalf of the small sellers on Amazon that this uh, nonprofit that I help run uh, Online Merchants Guild. Basically, we, we, we advocate for them. But, you know, if you really read the court's decision, it's actually pretty sound because the court was very clear that, you know, hey, we're removing this physical presence barrier. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every small business in the world can now be subject to tax. Um, the court was actually very specific in saying that um, we don't have anything on the record to really discuss the economic impact of, you know, making a kitchen table enterprise file tax returns in every state um, and sort of open the door to a future challenge. Um the one thing the court did note was that they said that, you know, if, you know, they're encouraged that, you know, software technology trends will progress to the point where uh, compliance with all the state laws could be made really easy uh, and and sort of in dicta sort of said, well, if that were to happen or if that does happen, then there's probably not much of a challenge because you've eliminated the burden of having to be compliant with all these laws and rules and forms. And, you know, state of uh, Colorado has like 700 different little mini tax departments you have to comply with oh my God. Uh, for the towns. I mean, it's an absolute nightmare. But um, the states have sort of ignored that. And they sort of, you know, despite the fact that the court was sort of very clear that Wayfair was a ginormous company, billion dollar company, and therefore it was pretty ridiculous that they were claiming it's an undue burden when plenty of smaller companies can handle it. Um, the states have decided, hey, we're going to go after those mom and pop businesses, you know, those those micro business owners. In fact, um, California has been the worst, uh, but recently Massachusetts has just sort of reared its ugly head. In fact, I had a client who just got $200,000 siphoned out of his bank account the other day by Massachusetts. Wow. 
you know, he's done. I mean, like he can't make payroll. He's not, I mean, not, I mean, this guy's totally uh, freaking out because they just made up a number and said, this is how much tax you owe. The funny thing is, is that even though I don't think he owes the tax under mass law, and there's a whole nother layer of, of BS around this, um, the actual tax amount in controversy would probably be more around $13,000, not 200, but it's a process just to get that fixed. And uh, they've already taken the money. So, you know, getting money back from a state, it's, it's like, you know, pretty, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. So, you know, these poor people now have to hire lawyers who used to work for GE, like me, <laughs> to help them. I mean, that, to me, the, the fact that I have these clients, you know, for tax cases, I always say that's sort of evidence per se of the burden on interstate commerce, because lawyers like me shouldn't really have clients like that. They shouldn't need lawyers who've done 50 state tax litigation. That's crazy. But it, yeah. Yeah. And it's scary. And, and I mean, I know so many people in that, especially like Amazon sellers, like we were talking about that instantly became not only national, but global enterprises. And now, now they're getting hit. Um, And what are you seeing this do to Amazon sellers, to these types of businesses? Because it seems like all of a sudden now you're filtering out and you're doing preferential treatment to larger organizations. Yeah, I know. It really is. I mean, the, the, the funny thing about this is that with Amazon in particular, especially with the Fulfillment by Amazon program, it's it's forget the constitutional law. It's not even state law. I mean, the way Amazon operates their quote unquote marketplace uh, is a bit, you know, to say it's a marketplace is a bit ridiculous. I mean, Amazon controls the customer. They control the experience. They, you know, it's not like you can advertise or direct customers to your own website. You know, you think about, a, you know, the Mall of America. Well, I mean, if the Mall of America was like Amazon's quote unquote little mall, uh, you know, every sign would say Mall of America and, you know, prominent display and, you know, maybe, you know, sold by Apple and fine print somewhere. You know, the, the Mall of America would be able to tell Apple to, for, you know, take back an iPhone, pass the return policy. I mean, it, it's really sort of a joke that Amazon, you know, sort of uses their adhesive contracts to sort of circumvent their obligations as a retailer. Um, but the states are willing to buy it because Amazon's a job giver and they have 30,000 jobs in the state of California. And despite the treasurer of California writing a five page letter to Amazon, you know, dictating all the reasons why, sorry, five page letter to California, dictating all the reasons why the sellers are not responsible for the tax. But Amazon is uh, Governor Newsom has decided, you know, to go head on against the sellers and, and give Amazon a, a pass that makes absolutely no sense. And, uh, you know, she used to be the head of sales tax. That's the funny thing, too. I mean, she was on the board of equalization. She was like the top people in the sales tax department in California. So she knows very well how it works. And for her to, to have gone out on a limb like that, I mean, I, I, I admire her, Fiona Ma, I admire her a lot because it's not like a lot of these people are out of staters. They're not her voters, but she just in principle, you know, sees how wrong this is to to do that. But Amazon's been so influential in, in being able to sort of you know, get states to look the other way and, and give them a pass. And and so when you talk about things like the retail uh, Armageddon or apocalypse, and, you know, I, I just love when state officials will blame, you know, a kitchen table enterprise in Iowa for the retail apocalypse in their state. Not the <laughs> fact that, you know, maybe, maybe this quote unquote marketplace called Amazon that really doesn't operate like a marketplace, but as a traditional retailer is the reason because you let them get away with not collecting sales tax. I mean, they, they deliberately shifted business towards their marketplace in order to avoid their tax collection obligations. They gamed everybody and they, they followed it up with really aggressive lobbying and incentive programs. And, 
you know, again, I just and, and just a little inside about incentive programs, I used to work for, for GE. And it's kind of funny. One of the last things I did at GE was I helped move their headquarters to Boston from Connecticut. You know, it was part of that team. And, you know, it's amazing how nice a state will be to you when you're when you're bringing goodies like that. And so when I see Amazon getting away with something that no other company in the world would get away with, it's like it'd be like Walmart not being able having to collect sales tax in their stores because it says sold by Apple on the price tag somewhere. You know, it's absolute, you know, nonsense. You know, it sort of violates the core principle of substance of reform. Yet here we are. And and there's no question that with headquarters, too, and the Amazon uh, jobs and warehouses, it's just that there's there's a clear correlation here between, you know, uh, what Amazon's getting away with, but it's unfortunate that states have decided to have their cake and eat it too by going after small out-of-state sellers. And that's the key is that they're out-of-state so the states don't care about them. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's an interesting place we found ourselves in. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned Online Merchants Guild, uh, which is your nonprofit. And I, I want to go into that a little deeper because you don't you haven't just said, OK, I'm going to be an attorney and take people's money. You're doing a lot of work to help, see, you know, help prevent this from happening. Tell me a little about the organization. Sure. So, um, yeah, so the organization is the advocacy. So if I have a, you know, a client who's being hit up for a million dollars in California, I represent them. You know, I, I help them. Um, you know, I have co-counsel in California I work with, but we take care, you know, that that's my practice, right? The Online Merchants Guild is, is an advocacy group that I, I volunteer to help start in sort of the first of its kind trade association for e-commerce sellers. Um, I think one of the biggest surprises to me coming into this space was that, you know, Wisconsin cheese farmers have a trade association representing the collective interest of the Wisconsin cheese farm industry. Yet, you know, millions of, of online sellers have no representation at all in a lobbying capacity and an advocacy capacity. So um, myself and a few other sellers decided to sort of, you know, start the process of changing that and formed Online Merchants Guild. And basically we are, you know, like I said, I, I volunteer a lot of my time because I think the legal issues are really cool. I mean, they're they're tragic, but it's this cutting edge constitutional law stuff. And as somebody who spends a lot of time in state tax litigation, especially con law is, is key. I mean, that's everything we do is the constitution, right? I mean, in federal tax law, when you argue the constitution, you usually end up in jail, like with Wesley Snipes, but in state tax, it's pretty common. And uh, this is some really cutting edge stuff and I wanted to get involved. So I'm, I'm happy to volunteer and be an advocate because, you know, I, I just see how wrong this is and how wrong these government actors are. And, and, you know, we've got to stand up to them. Um, and, and, and push back. So I think, I think it's been a good lesson too. I think, um, you know, I, I do tell people, you know, had you had a trade association that sort of advocated for e-commerce, you know, 10 years ago, uh, this probably wouldn't have happened. You know, somebody would have been on out in front of it and, you know, been, been advocating in the other direction. Um, currently we are lobbying, heavily in California, uh, both on the back tax issue, that is sellers being held accountable for back taxes. We've lobbied successfully to make Amazon the tax collector starting October 1st. So now we're just focusing on the back tax uh, issue. And we've also worked on the first of its kind seller protection law. So California has an assembly bill in, in, in going through the process right now. It just came out of the Senate Judiciary Committee called AB 1790, which has really, you know, cool seller protection language. It's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's, it's the first of its kind. And it's a starting point 
where you know Amazon has to disclose with specificity why you're being suspended or why they're holding your funds or you know can they compete against you can you know we want sellers to carry insurance to kind of filter out all the junk from China that's burning people's houses down um, where there's no accountability um, Amazon seems to be structuring their system very in a way where if you're in China, you have a bigger advantage. I mean, they even have this private boat for sellers just in China that's cheaper freight than typical. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's really, you know, Amazon wants to keep the prices low. So they they really go out of their way to encourage sellers in China um, to sell direct, but there's no accountability. And Amazon, every time there's a case that, um, you know, Amazon is, you know, somebody tries to sue Amazon on a product liability theory, Amazon keeps playing this marketplace card. However, that has changed. Last week, there was a decision in the Third Circuit, Pennsylvania, where the court actually did find Amazon could be held liable. So I think, I think people are starting to wake up to the reality that this use of the term marketplace in the context of Amazon is probably uh, a bit BS, that it's probably just, you know, it's all form, no substance. Whereas, you know, eBay certainly has more of the feel of a bazaar, although you could say that a lot of the same things about eBay. It's, you know, I sort of look at it as like a spectrum or even... Amazon on one end, maybe eBay in the middle, and then you've got sort of Craigslist and Facebook on the other end, right? Where, yeah, you really are the seller in those scenarios or your own Shopify site, where it's your own website, your own branding, right? You're the direct seller. But but with the Amazon marketplace and you read, you know, when you go through the process, I mean, most consumers I talk to who shop on Amazon just say, you know, I buy Prime. They don't even know who they're buying from, right? They don't know the name of the seller. They don't care. They might know their product, but they don't they don't know who the seller is, and nor do they care to know. They're just clicking because they're a prime member. Interesting. Yeah. And I do I mean, I mean, I personally order through Prime, but I've noticed I've ordered less and less because the quality has gone down and down. And, you know, and it's easy to get caught up in one of those Chinese deals or, you know, it, yeah, it's it's fulfilled and everything but then you realize this is a complete scam yeah and and i wonder too i mean so how do you see this i mean because i i see a lot of amazon sellers i've been a lot of amazon seller events um and a lot of these e-com businesses start on amazon do you think that's still a good idea from a legal standpoint and don't forget here guys if you're listening this is not legal advice Paul and I are not your attorneys. Talk to your attorney. <laughs> but, um, you know, from a legal standpoint, which, where, how would you be starting an Amazon business? You know, it's e com business, sorry. It's interesting. I was just speaking at a seller event, Seller Fest in Tel Aviv, and, and one of the last speakers was sort of how to get your product into Walmart as opposed, you know, so talking to a bunch of Amazon sellers, like, you know, don't forget that there's traditional retailers out there or Target or, um, you know, I think the problem, you know, Amazon is very addicting because, it, you know, if you know how to do it, you can really generate a lot of sales and you can generate sales quickly. You can get product reviews. You can do all those things. I mean, um, and it's very tempting. It's hard for e-commerce sellers to generate the volume that they generate off of Amazon that they generate on Amazon because Amazon's got, what, 100 million prime users. I mean, you've got a locked in audience. Um which I think is partially the problem with Amazon. I, I can give you my, how would I break up Amazon strategy if you want uh, one at some point I've written, I wrote a CNN editorial about it um, kind of got titled the wrong way, but um, I think that's part of the problem is that they've got a hundred million, you know, sticky people. Um, and it's just hard to not want to be a part of that. I mean, people still make money with Amazon 
the problem is, is the, that what Amazon gives away is just, I think, too much, right? I mean, if you're selling a product, um, you know, imagine walking into a Walmart store and, you know, putting your iPhone next to a product and finding out how many units Walmart just sold of that product and you're a competitor, right? I mean, the information that Amazon makes public about your product is just so much and, and your IP risk and, and your ability to enforce IP rights is so restricted on Amazon that, you know, it's, it's hard to say, I mean, but there are plenty of people out there who still say it's the best way. Um, I think it's, you know, if you're getting into private label and, you know, you're going on Alibaba and you're, you know, putting your stamp and making your changes to a sort of a common product, I don't see a problem with Amazon. I think if this is, you know, the idea of a lifetime that you've had, this is your shark tank moment, you know, I definitely would consider approaching with caution and then certainly understand uh, understanding Amazon, which is what, you know, what we focus on. We have all of our lawyers kind of have an Amazon take on it. We have one lawyer who is a seven figure seller on Amazon. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to say because that, that volume of sales is so tempting, but you know, they're, you're putting all of your cards out there. I mean, everybody can see what you're doing, how much you're selling. Um, and you know, when you've, you've signed away a lot of your rights via the arbitration clause with Amazon, that's a big thing right now is that Amazon, you know, um, basically, you know, any, any complaint or any failure of Amazon to act or any action it takes that's adverse. I mean, you're pretty much limited to arbitration level damages and, and that's just not very appealing. So, you know, people, th- you throw away a lot when you go to Amazon. So I think it's, it's, there's a number of factors and I just think you have to think about it, but, you know, certainly if you're just sort of one of those people who are just kind of like, you know, moving in and out of different products based on trends, I, I still think that there's money to be made. It's just, you know, it's a skill. I mean, some people are better at it than others, but if this is really like your life's work and you feel really like, you know, just, you may want to approach with caution. Um, and there's some things you can do. I get, you know, we could talk about, I think maybe at the end when we talk about some tips that might give you a little bit more leverage when dealing with Amazon, especially in terms of protecting your IP rights. But, um, you know, it, it's still, it's a little scary out there. I, I, I don't like that they give away your information. I don't like that they tell other people how much you're saying, because it just invites that pot, you know, invites that race to the bottom effect of, you know, you have a successful product and the next thing you know, there's a whole bunch of knockoffs competing with you and prices are coming down and yep. you just totally lost everything. I mean, you're, you've, you know, so, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a rat race still, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I've heard, I, I don't, this is all hearsay, but I have heard of other people of having people having products on their Amazon saying, I want to see your supply chain. And then all of a sudden Amazon has the same product and it's oh. Amazon brand. I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's not a big secret. That's actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah or, or Amazon just figuring it out or Amazon, um, you know, we, there's, there's, you know, multiple types of Amazon sellers. You've got your sort of your retailer arbitrage crew, which is the guy, you know, which I used to do back in the day when I was in law school a long time ago, which is when you're flipping things you're buying in the retail stores, cause you can sell it online for a higher price. Um, You've got the wholesalers who, you know, develop, uh, you know, relationships with the brands, you know, bigger brands out there and get, you know, the, you know, sometimes they have the right, sometimes they're diverting um, to sell the products. What Amazon might do in that instance is if you're selling a really popular product, like maybe a kitchen knife that's really popular, Amazon might go directly to your manufacturer and try to cut you out. So, I mean, that's the other way that they can, you know, uh, deal with, you know, 
work around sellers if they want. And they've done that. They've been known to do that too. That's happened to a number of sellers where basically Amazon has cut them out. Um, And then with the private label product sellers, yeah, I mean, you have a great idea and, you know, it's trending. And the next thing you know, you find your product is an Amazon basic too, you know, and now Amazon basics gets all the prominent display, prominent search results, and uh, you're left with nothing. You're left holding holding a bunch of inventory you can't use. Wow. So that's crazy, but now I want to get into actually, you know, I've worked with a lot of attorneys and, you know, and been in legal for a long time and you've, you started this law firm. And what's interesting to me is a, I think it's genius. And I know it came organically is that you niched in. I, I think it's so important. I always tell people when you're starting a law firm, get ultra niched that, and I want to talk about a little how that came about, but also, the other, my second part of that question is, have you ever seen in the history of law, and obviously I'm not an attorney, so I don't know the entire history of our, our law, but where a single company created a, essentially a need for a niche of law? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's interesting. It really, um, no. I mean, I'm trying to think like, you know, like, like, the apps and the app developer. I mean, but, but in this way, I mean, Amazon has its own court system. I mean, I don't think people realize that there's, I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. The Supreme court of Amazon is actually Jeff at amazon.com. If you're a seller and your account has been shut down for some reason, maybe it was a dirty seller trick, which is what my colleague, uh, or not my colleague, my, uh, uh, I guess there's um, competitor in the suspension space, but but a friend Cynthia Sign often says is that she calls them dirty seller tricks. Um, but if if you know where, for example, and I'll give you an example of a dirty seller trick we dealt with actually not that long ago. Uh, somebody claimed to be a design patent owner um, of a product that one of our sellers was selling, and it wasn't even infringing. And, and we don't usually go into infringement because that can open up a whole can of worms. But what was interesting was the person claiming infringement was the rights owner and the rights owner was dead. And that doesn't mean that you can't have a rights owner. It just means that, but they were actually claiming to be that person, right? You know, they were Bob rights owner, but Bob rights owner actually died. So there's no way Bob's rights owner can be writing an email and signing his own name to it. Right. And it used a generic outlook.com address. So, you know, you basically have a dead guy claiming um, that, you know, somebody's infringing on their patent to get them knocked off so that their competing product can sell. Right. And these are these types of tricks. And so um, when you're dealing with that, um, there's a process you go through. And after going through that process, if you don't get the results that you're looking for, you have like sort of one last appeal. You have to have all your ducks in a row and you have to send an email to Jeff at Amazon.com. And there's a whole process and procedure and strategy to how you write what we call a Jeff letter. And Jeff at Amazon.com is a, is a prioritized uh, sort of high level review, you know, highest level review of your case. And they will make an ultimate determination as to whether, uh, uh, whether or not you are uh, um, allowed to sell on Amazon again. So uh, there's all, it's, it's, it's really crazy. It's, it's a very, it's a court system and it's very not transparent. Uh, you don't know who's reviewing it. The people who are oftentimes charged with reviewing these cases are, you know, doing three, four a minute. Um, a little secret about me and my wife used to be one of those people. Uh, she was one of the first when it was a little bit less process driven and more actually had to think. And, and she was uh, in Amazon. They called seller performance. Now um, when she did, I think it was called TRMS. 
Um, so one of the other reasons I just happen to know a lot about Amazon, in addition to being a seller, is that I everybody I knew when I lived in Seattle, uh, I used to hang out with the Amazon people more so than the Microsoft people. And it just I learned a lot about the Amazon marketplace through working with the people policing it or knowing the people who policed it. So um, sort of weird fact pattern that just sort of led me down this road in terms of, uh, you know, tax becoming the top issue and then having to know a lot about it. Interesting. Wow. This is fascinating stuff that most of us don't know about. And, you know, we just click and order and don't realize all this stuff happening in the background. Um, so talk, let's talk about how you, you went from in-house counsel to private practice to this very niche private practice. Yeah. So I was, um, loving life as an in-house lawyer. Uh, I was, um, uh, you know, for years I was at Microsoft and then I got recruited to go to Walmart in Arkansas, which, you know, sounds crazy, but actually was really cool. And then, um, I got contacted by GE's outside recruiter, um, who does all of GE's recruiting. And they asked me if I wanted to go to GE. Now as a tax lawyer, going to GE is kind of a big deal, right? At least at the time it was right. I mean, they are, they pay no tax. They, they're, they were written up in the New York times as the most, you know, uh, the best tax law firm in the country, despite being in house, um, every tax department in the country, every tax, you know, acknowledges that they want to be like GE. That's the way it was. Um, so I, I, of course, jumped on that opportunity and moved to Connecticut. And I, and in my time at GE was really, I enjoyed it, but it was sort of, you could see what was coming down the road because a lot of the deals I was getting involved in, you know, were disassembling GE, you know, from, NBC to GE Capital, you know, I, you know, we're going to get rid of GE Capital. So hey, which division are we getting rid of? You know, is it the credit cards? Is it the real? No, all of it. Half the company. We're going to just dissolve. We're just going to sell it off. I mean, it, it was really kind of um, just kind of a downtime to be there. But um, uh, I did that. And, and, you know, where it went from there, I was sort of planning to just go to one of these law firms that I've worked with my whole career. You know, I've worked with so many different tax law firms. Um, and around that same time, it was actually one of my wife's coworkers who is now an Amazon consultant, um, reached out to me and said, Hey, I've got all these Amazon clients who are getting pounded about tax. And I don't know what to tell them. And he knew what I used to do and, or, and what I did at Microsoft <clears throat> and, and asked me to do a blog post. And, and, and what started with one blog post, um, quickly saw suddenly sellers started reaching out to me. Hey, I've got a bill from California for a million dollars. I've got this and I got, you know, what do I do? And I started like just taking on clients and, um, you know, I was going to go to, um, a couple law firms, but I kind of quickly realized that I actually can't go to a law firm because my position on this is so anti Amazon that any of the law firms that I knew and were interested, was interested in going to, wasn't going to take an hostile and anti Amazon position. Uh, it's, you know, the most desired client, it's a fortune 500, you know, typically the clients I would be working with are in that space and, and just not, nobody was comfortable taking a position that was really against the fortune 500. Um, and that was sort of my realization that, you know, if I want to have an honest and open, no filter discussion about the issues and, and be an advocate, I have to be on my own. And that's just kind of how it happened. And so I just started, you know, on my own and then kind of uh, pulled in a lawyer from Seattle who uh, I used to work with in Microsoft. He's a patent lawyer. Uh, his name's Vern Francis. And uh, he used to 
be the what was it senior patent counsel to the chief software architect of Microsoft. So I sort of say, you know, you can have Bill Gates lawyer working for your Amazon account. It's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> that helps. Uh, yeah. I'm like, so we kind of know what we're doing. Um, and then um, uh, I took on a, another lawyer not that long ago named Jeff Schick, who, you know, he's a young lawyer, but he's got about eight years of being a seven figure Amazon seller. And, and his legal experience is really, you know, that Amazon court system. He knows that system, you know, and so having someone like that on the team is really important so that we can help our seller, our seller clients when they get in trouble with Amazon. Having somebody that really, you know, knows the legal system of Amazon and I call it the legal system of Amazon, but uh, most people who practice in that space are not lawyers. In fact, one of my biggest frustrations with being a lawyer in private practice is how many non-lawyers seem to be practicing law right now. I've never realized how unprotected our industry was until now. It's, it's, it's really frustrating um, that, you know, my biggest competitors in, in this space are typically just people claiming to be an IP expert. Well, how can you be an IP expert? If you get an infringement notice, call me, I'm an IP expert. Well, I, I think that's a legal issue, but you know, everybody is just claiming to be a, an expert tax. I mean, you know, yes, accountants can practice tax, but you know, should they be making constitutional law arguments and determinations? No, absolutely no, not. No. But no. they are, you know, two tax software companies are out there saying, you know, what Nexus is and what the constitution says, and they're completely wrong. Um, and yet, you know, they have got a powerful marketing engine and are able to, uh, you know, do that. And, and I, I do, I actually feel like, cause it's, it's a little bit stressful and frustrating at times being an attorney in private practice. Cause I just feel like the, like, I feel like the, you know, talk about out of date. I feel like the bar association is kind of out of date in the way that, you know, I just feel like our hands are tied. We can't do anything. Um, yeah. Uh, nobody wants to, you know, like, like nobody really wants to partner with you because you can't pay them unless they're a law firm, right? You can't get into referral fee arrangements, you know, and meanwhile, the tax software companies pay, you know, however many bucks per customer that they get. And it's like, so a law that's designed to protect, you know, the client is actually working to drive clients away from lawyers and towards these, you know, zero qualification consultants that some don't even have a college degree. I mean, there's an M there are M and A advisors, mergers and acquisitions advisors, right? Buying and selling your Amazon accounts—a big thing right now, right? There, 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 there are folks out there who've done it once. They had an Amazon business, they sold it, and now they call themselves Amazon M and A experts, and they're out there, you know, talking about you know they know nothing about due diligence or, you know, any of the issues involving a typical M and A deal, and yet they're out there calling themselves experts. So this is a bit of a divert. Yeah, you know, I don't know who this. I don't want to drift too far away from center here, but I just you know. It felt like the opportunity to gripe, I guess. No, it's interesting to me because, you know, especially, in, I mean, being in legal marketing, how much the bars have, especially attacked small private practices. And I've seen it over and over again. And, you know, private practice is so scared to market and so scared to do a lot of this stuff. And yeah, you're right now, they're driving people to non-legal means, non-attorney means. And so right. it's really, really interesting. Um, and they're so far outdated, so far outdated. And, and I want, I won't get into it because I know some of the people, but <laughs> um, it, it is, I, I just had a discussion today about North Carolina. North Carolina is the only one that requires attorneys to register their trade name if they have a different trade name for their website. And it's just like, well, why is this so different? 
but that's neither here nor there. I mean, it, it, it's like, I mean, with the internet, people are smarter. They do their research to do it. I mean, it's like, it's, it, it's just different now than it is back then, but it just seems like we're, it just, it's, it's, it's like, I almost want to resign my law, law degree and just practice as a consultant. It's like, what's the point? You yeah. Know? I mean, I really, my clients don't want to litigate. They're not, they're not, they can't afford it. Right. I mean, I'm not going to be going to court on behalf of my clients anytime soon, at least most of them. Right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, what's the point? I mean, it, it's so discouraging. And I, I never knew, you know, obviously being in tax, we do deal with it because we have like, you know, when you're a tax lawyer and your competition is like Deloitte and Touche or Price Waterhouse, because they're kind of like quasi practicing law. In fact, those big four accounting firms employ more lawyers than the biggest law firms. Right. But they're not practicing law. Right. I know that frustrates a lot of my colleagues in the legal space, but even at this level where it's like, you know, I did something once and now I can call myself an expert because I think it's just rinse and repeat every time or, you know, people it's, it's just, I don't know. It's frustrating. And then of course there's the legal zoom side of things where, you know, these Amazon gurus will say, don't hire a lawyer to do anything. Don't hire a lawyer for a trademark. Don't hire a lawyer for a corporation. Just open up a Wyoming legal zoom, get the Wyoming special from legal zoom and you'll be just fine. And I'm thinking to myself, if you sell a hoverboard, and that hoverboard burned someone's house down. And there's three people to sue. The China, the manufacturer in China, you and Amazon. You're probably the primary target. Now, you might have insurance, but I'm like, if you have any net worth, do you really think the LegalZoom LLC you formed and probably didn't maintain or do anything right is going to be the best form of protection for you and the assets that you have? I mean, if you're a kid out of college, that's one thing. I get, what do you have? But I mean, you know, smart people listen to these gurus have who, who some of whom have no credibility. I mean, I mean, they've been caught faking, you know, pictures of Lambo, you know, renting a Lambo for the day and faking pictures. And it's like, these are the people we're getting legal advice from. And so yeah, <laughs> the bar association is this is what's happening. I mean, this is what's, what's, you know, we're getting advice from, from gurus and, and Lambos, not lawyers. And, and, and something's got to give because it's, it's, you know, you know, a lot of my clients come to me, especially tax litigation clients, the ones who I have to actually write appeals for, um, because they listen to a non-lawyer tax advisor who's not even an accountant, uh, one of many out there, um, and uh, they told them to you know go register and collect in sales tax in California and and work out a deal. And it turns out the deal California wants to give them is a million dollars on a payment plan. Uh, that's not going to work for them. I mean, th- th- these are amounts might have bankrupt them, and and legally, they were not obligated to collect in California. And yet they were given that advice and, and now they're down a road where it's too late. I mean, it's just, oh you know, that now you got to go to appeals because you've just, you've, you've gone past the point of no return. Right. Yep. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's crazy to me. And, and on top of it, just the added layer of complexity that you talked about, how many attorneys are staying up to date on this, even if they are, you know, attorneys. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's, I mean, I I guess my message for attorneys is just be mindful when you're dealing with Amazon sellers that you're not dealing with a small business. You're dealing with a global small business. It's a totally different type of thing. It didn't exist 25 years ago when that sales tax decision was made, right? These are global small businesses. I mean, it doesn't even, you know, when they made a tax court decision, when the Supreme Court decided physical presence was the rule, I mean, the thought would be the the thought process obviously was that if you were to have physical presence in 50 states, you had to be a big company, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you're going to define physical presence as an Amazon warehouse, which I I think is complete nonsense um, and violates the due process clause. Look up Jay McIntyre, Vina Castro, 2011. Um, 
you know, lack of purposeful availment, but nonetheless, I mean, if that's how, how we're going to look at it, then, you know, you know, there you go. You have Nexus in 50 States and all you've done is ship a box to, you know, give a, you gave a box to UPS and you have a Nexus in, in, in 50 States. And, and, uh, it's, it, it's really, um, there's just a lot, you know, of confusion out there. Prop 65 in California. I don't know if you know what that is. That's the little sticker you have to put on your product to say that it causes all sorts of diseases or else you're in violation of, you know, so like if you rent a car in California, oftentimes on the glove box, it'll, there'll be a giant sticker that says Prop 65 warning, the chemical we use to make this, you know, in this process of manufacturing this product have been known to cause all sorts of diseases. That's a California law, but how do you bifurcate your supply chain to only put a sticker on a California product? You can. So, you know, Cal people in, you know, Connecticut are getting, you know, uh, hit by, um, sort of bounty hunter lawyers who are going after Amazon sellers for Prop 65 violations. And you didn't put a proper Prop 65 warning on your product or you didn't test it. And it's like, I'm not, I mean, are they even subject to the jurisdiction of California if all they did was turn their box over to UPS and went yeah. to an Amazon warehouse? I mean, it's, it's, there's so much, you know, it's such the, it really is the legal wild West, this Amazon thing. And, um, the way to fix it, I mean, really the way to fix it is just to kind of look like like what we say with tax. I mean, just why is Amazon any different than any other retailer in the country? Why is Amazon different than Walmart? Why is Amazon different than Target? I mean, they're doing the exact same thing. These sellers are effectively suppliers. They are, in essence, suppliers. They don't have any other rights in the contract than, than a supplier would, would normally expect. Um, Amazon just sort of calls them little individual retailers, even though they get no retail presence in the transaction no privity of contract with the consumer. Um, and, and I think that that is going to be the way forward is that, you know, we're going to have to stop, you know, looking to these sellers, but for now, just be mindful. It's, it's the wild West, but your seller clients, you know, opening up a tea shop around the corner is a lot different than starting an Amazon business these days. There's just a lot more headache that goes with it because it's just, it's the complete wild West right now. Wow. That's crazy. All right. Well then on a positive note, yes. <laughs> what are some of your Amazon seller tips that you can give them? Uh, yeah. So, uh, one of my, um, favorite tips right now is I want people to think about, uh, intellectual property differently. I think Amazon has this program called brand registry where you register your trademark and you can enforce your rights. And, and I want people to think differently and, and think about possibly holding your intellectual property in a separate company than the company you register for brand registry. And you can do that. And the reason is, is that what we've noticed is that when it comes down to have to take someone down for uh, IP violations, Amazon's actually more responsive when you're an outsider. So in other words, an outsider means somebody who hasn't signed an arbitration contract with Amazon. So think about being a distributor for Nike and that distributor doing business with Nike versus Nike itself, right? When Amazon gets a cease and desist letter from Nike or gets a no, you know, a takedown notice from Nike, they're, they're going to be much more responsive than maybe, you know, some dispute result with the distributor because Nike's an outsider enforcing their IP rights, being an insider, having signed Amazon's arbitration clause, they te seem to be slow to react. So, um, you know, consider, you know, being careful about, um, what, you know, how you structure your business. And, and it's kind of crazy to think that small businesses might need IP holding companies, but if you have a valuable product and you have valuable intellectual property and you want to keep others from stealing it, um, consider using an IP holding company. And the other thing is, is don't forget common copyright. Uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act has a takedown procedure. It's it's statutory. Um, 
it's a great tool. Everybody's focused on trademark, but you have natural, you know, you you basically have a copyright the moment you you create uh, something. The moment, but but why not register your copyrights? It's very easy and cheap to do. Um, ensure that ensuring you can then take certain legal action if needed, but also it just adds um, some substance, and you can actually use that, take advantage of the DMCA to uh, take down a, a seller who maybe is taking a, using a drawing or a likeness of a drawing that you copyrighted to make a product that looks like your product. So, um, you know, every, you know, design patents are great. Um, trademarks always helpful, but don't forget the common copyright. I mean, this, 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 it's a really great tool and I don't think enough Amazon sellers really realize how cheap and easy it is to do and how powerful it is because it's the only area of intellectual property that has statutory law and takedown. You know, the DMCA does not apply to patents and trademarks. So, um, you gotta get creative out there. It's, it's really hard to get Amazon to act these days. Um, they're starting to ignore people's design patents, especially if the, the design patent owners is, is, is filing a complaint within seller central, meaning they're on insider. Um, so, you know, these are just some strategies you can use. And then, um, last bit of good news is on the sales tax front. Uh, you know, the one thing that has changed is thankfully a number of States have passed these seller marketplace facilitator laws. So, you know, starting October 1st, uh, California will be collecting sales tax already. A number of states are already collecting sales tax by making Amazon do it, um, not the uh, sellers individually. And I think that's the trend. So, I mean, if you're thinking about selling on Amazon right now or or you've been reading some sales tax blogs, you really need to think twice before you go registering for sales tax in, in a whole bunch of states because it's it's um, really uh, – it's it's not what it was two years ago, and and I wouldn't have advised it then and, and – uh, I'm not saying not to do it because everyone's situation is different, not legal advice, but I'm just saying that um, a lot has changed since then. So definitely be careful what you read. And um, even that 200 transaction test, uh, you know, for your Shopify site, a lot of states have pushed, pulled back on the 200 transaction tests. You sell something for 200 for $20 times 200, that's four grand. I don't think anybody's going to be held accountable for Nexus for having $4,000 of sales based on these economic Nexus thresholds. So um, you know, I think there is some positive stuff coming out there. So just, you know, be mindful out there, be careful what you read, consider the source. Um, if they're trying to sell you a software, it's probably going to tell you the thing that's going to scare you into buying that software. So. And, yeah. And if they have a Lambo, you might not trust them either. Yeah. If you have a Lambo, <laughs> yeah. If they have two Lambos, then that's fine. Cause they cancel each other out. So. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That, uh, that frustrates me too. Oh, the, the Lambo thing. And the sad part is it works. Um, it does, huh? It's, it's crazy. It is crazy. I, I won't name any people, but you know who you are. Uh, <laughs> well, Paul Raffleson, it's been awesome talking to you today. I, I, I found this super interesting and very, very helpful. Thanks so much for being on the show. You bet. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. It was great talking to you. And if you want to contact Paul, you can go to ecomattorneys.com. And also, if you are an online seller, especially in the Amazon space, make sure to check out onlinemerchantskill.org, the nonprofits, um, really about bringing together, you know, like, like Paul said, bringing together a, a trade association to help protect your rights. Um, but thank you all for listening. This has been Paul Raffleson and I'm Ian Garlic in the Garlic Marketing Show. And thanks for taking us on your journey. You know it will get you more leads, better leads that close faster and spend more with you. And video stories will help you be remembered and connect with those perfect clients. The problem is, where do you start? StoryCruise.com is the place to go. 
It's like a film crew with an S. What's your strategy? Do you do it yourself? Do you hire a videographer, an agency? Do you need an editor? How do you know if they really know your business and how to make videos for business that work? The answer to all of this and more can be found at storycruise.com. It is the place to find the latest video marketing strategies, the best gear for your business, as well as videographers, editors, and agencies near you that are trained in video storytelling for business. Go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get special insider info for listeners of the Garlic Marketing Show, including special access to several of my courses, including my case story course. Go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get a whole bunch of special offers just for listeners of the Garlic Marketing Show. Whether you're looking for a videographer or to do it yourself, go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get started today. That's it for the Garlic Marketing Show. If you want to get the inside scoop and the latest techniques, make sure to follow Ian Garlic on Facebook.